Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Meg Swanick, who travels extensively to write about U.S. soccer. She has a new Substack site called The Swan Dive you should check out. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Meg Swanick in segment two. Let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. I'm uh, very jealous that uh, Meg Swanick's name lends itself to a name like the Swan Dive. I wish that I had uh, a name that could be punned. If we did yours, would your substack be called Another Brick in the Wall? Could we do that? I have a, a visceral reaction to bad pun names like puns off of like the creator's name on things um to the point where like i really don't like it but like not with meg like meg's is good like i have no issues mm. with meg's and, and but like like somebody asked me if i did football with grant wall to like so it, it rhymed and i'm just like no hmm. no i didn't um so um, yeah, I was never good at naming things anyway. Yeah, me, but, me too. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, me neither. I'm terrible at it. Uh, but, uh, like, I'm jealous of people like, like, The Low Post is a perfect name for a podcast about basketball hosted by a guy with the surname Low. I'm very jealous that it works to that degree. It can be done well. When it's not done as well, it's, is, is when the issue takes place. <laughs> and, and then they're just bad names. I remember way back in the day when I covered college basketball for Sports Illustrated, this is like... 2001 2002 that the name for a while for my column online was the oncologist but (laughs) o-n-c-o-l-l-e-g-e an oncologist is a a cancer specialist it's a bit grim it's it's terrible name just awful Wow, and someone should bring that back. Can like Gary Parish at CBS bring that back? I love that, although it's a bit grim. Just, just the worst. I hated it. it. Didn't last very long. Didn't last very Stunning. long. Uh, true. Um, but let's talk about some stuff going on in the soccer world here. We're talking Wednesday, late afternoon Eastern time. Um, the Premier League games are over for the, or at least. Wednesday and Tuesday, we've got the North London Derby on Thursday, which is going to be fun. But Liverpool and Man City at the top, hold serve midweek here, uh, both win their games. City still up by three points on Liverpool. And increasingly, we, we do this every time now, your prediction that City would just squander everything after the, the mental breakdown at Real Madrid is not coming true. Yeah, and and you look at their results in the Premier League. Their results in the Premier League are 5-1, They've scored so many goals in their most recent games. Was it 22 to 2 in their last 5 in the Premier or in the last 6 in the Premier League? This is insane. So you look at a team that are playing incredibly well. Kevin De Bruyne today with an absolute masterclass. And it is kind of interesting. Manchester City are on the brink of winning the Premier League. They have now an advantage of three points over Liverpool, and they're seven goals better in terms of goal difference. So I guess you can say it's kind of like a three-and-a-half-point lead for now. Uh, Liverpool do play Southampton at the weekend, who are known to give away a few lopsided results. So 
either way, Man City are in this race. They're playing incredibly well. And yet, even today, as Kevin De Bruyne scores four goals, some of which were majestic, still the Champions League looms in the background because one of the major talking points from the Champions League game was that Pep Guardiola took Kevin De Bruyne off before the end of the game, which in a game of that magnitude... You probably shouldn't have. And I know that it doesn't necessarily answer the question of how does Kevin De Bruyne stop a team from conceding twice in 70 seconds, but that's one of the factors in play is that Kevin De Bruyne, once you give away those goals, wasn't on the field to lead the comeback effort, and you can tell he just has that personality, that big figure element at this city club that I don't think anyone else has. So even in this win, that match still looms large, but they're just a machine in the Premier League. They've been unbelievable in these last few games. They really have been. And in the the whole De Bruyne coming off against Real Madrid thing, on the one hand, I, I feel like it would have been nice to have De Bruyne on when things got rough defensively for them. The guy who replaced him in that game was Gundogan in like the second minute that Gundogan was on, he set up the goal by Mares. So like, there is that to remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I do think non-injury situation taking off De Bruyne not great um by Pep Guardiola in that situation but um right now it seems like Liverpool is actually laboring a bit more than they have been in their games they end up beating Aston Villa 2-1 and so things can change you know for quite a while this calendar year Liverpool was the team that looked better sort of overall and even results wise than Man City that's changing and I'm at the point now where I think City's going to win this. Um, after they played to a tie, Liverpool and City, a couple weeks ago, I, I felt like Liverpool had a slight advantage just because I thought they would find a way and that City would drop points at some juncture. Doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, and so uh, I have sort of, I don't know why I say accepted. I have no problem if City wins the league. I don't have a, a dog in either fight. Um At the bottom end, we've got Leeds losing at home to Chelsea, similar to the Arsenal game, where fairly early red card, early goals conceded by Leeds. And this may come down to an extent to Everton, recently had Chelsea at home, won. Leeds had Chelsea at home, lost. And I do get the sense now, Everton got a point today, that Everton, I feel like, is in pretty good shape. They're not mathematically staying up yet, for sure. But I do feel increasingly like this is going to be either Leeds or Burnley that goes down. Agreed. And you look at Everton, it really now comes down to the fixtures. I think Leeds have probably been unlucky with, you know, getting... Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, in, and Manchester City in three games when they're trying to stay up. And now they've taken injuries as a result. They've taken red card suspensions as a result. No Stuart Dallas. Jack Harrison picked up a knock today. He's out. Dan James picked up a red card today. Luke Ayling at the weekend. So these in- incredibly important players that have led their campaign to go up to the Premier League are now uh, missing these big moments. It's been an injury-riddled season throughout. There are plenty of excuses, plenty of reasons why Leeds are not getting it done, but uh, Jesse Marsh, in the run into the season, has to pull off one, if not two, extraordinary results 
in order to keep leads up, and he hasn't done it yet. And I really thought that maybe you look at Chelsea's drop in form, Arsenal are, for me, always vulnerable. You you play uh, Manchester City right before they go into that Champions League second leg, and you're hoping somewhere in there is a point, is three points, but it's been nothing, and you haven't really even been particularly close when you've looked at the scoreline. So uh, in, in, my, in my opinion, I think Leeds... Are in are in deep deep trouble as a result of the injuries and the suspensions. I think Jesse Marsh is going to have to pull something off here and hope that Burnley can't get a point or something more away at the weekend against Spurs. Will be on very short rest off of the North London derby, although those games will be massive for them to get into the Champions League. So I, I do think that Leeds are up against it. They're going to have to beat Brighton at the weekend, which is a tough game now. Brighton are in a good run of form. Um, unfortunately, uh, where one American drops, another American rises, Christian Pulisic uh, gets the second goal for Chelsea in this one. Uh, surely a, a way for him to, to lift his mood and his confidence, maybe even put himself in contention for the FA Cup final, if not from the start, then certainly off the bench. Um, but Chelsea, at the very least, bounce back. You can definitely say now they'll probably be in the Champions League next year and head into this FA Cup uh, weekend probably in a in a you know at least probably feeling a little bit better than Liverpool having to suffer a couple of tight games. I think that'll be a really good game on Saturday. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that game and and I don't know if Pulisic's going to start. He started the last two Chelsea games including midweek here which might suggest that he's Tuchel's not playing to start him on the weekend against Liverpool, but who knows? I mean, Pulisic's had a pretty good record at times against Liverpool too. Uh, scored a good goal in the league earlier this season against Liverpool. But um, let's talk about Erling Haaland has now been announced official going. Well, it's official that they've reached an agreement. It's going to happen. It got the here we go from Fabrizio where it's basically done. Yes. To Man City. And this is a team Man City that has not had a true number nine this season. Um, And now they've got one and they've got one who many think is on the verge of being a true global superstar. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are if this feels like a situation where this is the missing ingredient that City needs to win Champions League next year, or is this somewhat more like when Ibrahimovic went to Barcelona and played for Guardiola and it was kind of a disaster. Well, I, I will be interested to see how Erling Haaland's entire skill set fits within Pep Guardiola's game model. I do think if you're playing in that position for Manchester City, you're going to get chances to score goals. I think it's almost impossible. The question is, does the rest of the team suffer from a defensive standpoint, from a technical standpoint? Because right now, I mean, we're kind of almost at the goal for Pep Guardiola to have 10, 11 midfielders essentially out there because Ed, Ederson can play in a holding role, no question, uh, with, with his passing ability. But, uh, you know, you have a lot of technical players out there. They execute the way that Guardiola wants to play to a T, and in some respects, the bringing in of a striker is kind of a recognition that it needs to change a little bit. And that I think Man City certainly have gotten plenty far uh, without a striker this season, probably a lot further than some might have thought. But uh, I think that Erling Haaland will bring a different element. The question is, how long is a settling in period? Because we have seen a lot of Pep Guardiola's recent transfers come in. Take a second to get used to it. Jack Jack Grealish was bought for 100 million pounds in the summer, and he basically hasn't settled 
has done not much of anything. And as a City fan, I'm not panicking a great deal as a result of that because it takes a second. It's incredibly particular the way that Pep Guardiola wants you to play. And so the good news here is that it's a very low-key summer in England. And so you have the chance to... Go on, go on your internationals, take your six weeks off, get some good rest in, and you'll have a full preseason as well, uh, fitness permitting, for Erling Haaland to really get settled into this Man City side. But uh, I, I'm really fascinated by the dynamics of it. Uh, I, for the rest of the league, I think, you know, in some ways, this really becomes the Death Star if it wasn't already, if Erling Haaland <laughs> can hit the heights. Because if you take that player and drop him into this team the way that they've played this year, that's a terrifying proposition. It really is. And just to be clear, I don't think this is going to be an Ibrahimovic at Barcelona situation. I do think that Holland is going to be very successful at Man City. And I think this might put them over the top to finally win the Champions League next season. I'm more interested now in potentially going to Green Bay, Wisconsin this summer for the, uh, I think it's Man City-Bayern game. I, like, mm-hmm. I usually don't get into summer preseason friendlies in the u.s but um that could be fun i've never been to green bay before either and so i I think this might be a decent occasion i'm guessing that field is like 10 yards too narrow for soccer it it it, it 100 is 100 is is far too narrow but if you you get a 20 minute glimpse into it and you get to go to uh, one of the legendary hallmarks of American football, then I, I think you kind of got, I, I, I might join you on that trip. I feel like that'd be a fun one uh, to, to go to go and check that out. There's there's actually not many cities in this country that I haven't been to uh, over the years. So that that's one of the bigger ones that I have not visited. I think Sacramento might be another one, but I've been just about everywhere. In the US. <laughs> I will say though, from a Man City perspective, I know that striker is one that's been talked about a lot. I feel like the one the one that's gotten less attention is Man City basically haven't signed a left back since they brought in Benjamin Mendy five years ago. And I guess Joao Cancelo can play there. Um, but I always thought he was part of the succession planning for Kyle Walker's eventual decline. Uh, for me, you, we talk about striker being an area where maybe, you know, that puts him over the top. I actually think a good left back that can play that position up and down technically. I know Zinchenko has done a job and a bunch of different guys have done a job for five years with Benjamin Mendy getting hurt and then having, you know, a load of off the field issues. Uh, but I, I, I do think that a recognized left back. Like for me, football is a weak link game. And, you know, I think that has always kind of been the one position on the field that you can kind of attack Man City, either from a defensive point of view or if the ball comes to the player playing in that position, they're either on their weaker foot or not exactly in their natural position. So I think if there's one more signing for them to make, it would be uh, on that left. And Pep Guardiola is always going to sign another midfielder. So uh, I, I feel like that's probably what, what what is to look out for for Manchester City this summer. It is interesting, especially in Guardiola's system, how important the fullbacks are to getting forward. Um, and covering a lot of ground and also being very smart in how they play. So uh, I I agree with you on that. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about U.S. Open Cup, which is this week. You have the round of 32 games. And since we're talking Wednesday, there's a bunch of games tonight. Uh, By the time we come out Thursday morning, those results will be out. But uh, I guess I would want to say I think the Open Cup is getting a little more attention than usual or that it has been this season. I think there's a few reasons for that. I like that, by the way. I think it's been sort of underappreciated over the years. And I think it's great that ESPN Plus is showing every game. 
even if there's just like one camera and some, but, uh, but that's, that's not bad. It's good to at least have the ability to do that. And I tweeted a couple of weeks ago that I was like, it's too bad that ESPN's not doing a whip around show um, with the games that they have on ESPN plus. And Sebi Salazar, our friend uh, with Football Americas, tweets yesterday or the day before off my tweet from a couple of weeks ago. We're doing it. We're doing a whip around show on ESPN Plus, him and Hurt Gomez on Wednesday night. And I just want to say thumbs up, guys. Uh, I'm excited about that. I think it would be a great thing to, to do more often. And I'm glad that these guys have those ideas and they're in a position to execute. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see a weekly MLS whip around show. Why not? Uh, on on the, the Saturday night with the uh, 7 o'clock kickoffs and the 9.30 kickoffs as well. Uh, that'd be fun. I'll, I'll play. I'll have my my small role to play in it. I'll be on the call for Nashville SC and Atlanta United. So uh, yes. know, by, the time, by the time you listen to this, you might have heard a few of my calls in there. But yeah, I mean, the Open Cup. So ESPN Plus took over the rights ahead of the 2019 edition of the tournament. And I, I work at this uh, place called Vista to world link where we do all the games from and i remember it was a really big deal in 2019 when you know all the games and i did you know this game uh was lansing ignite and a team from ann arbor and it was like the first round there was like 10 people there but it was really cool that like every game of the tournament was broadcast from the first round on from locales all over the country you get to experience bits of culture i learned about bavarians sc this uh wisconsin club this small club that has a huge german influence i love this tournament and i'm glad and espn plus did a really good job in 2019 starting you know put together real good quality it wasn't you know a far flung youtube stream it was a legitimate production and unfortunately the 2020 and 20 2021 editions of the tournament were canceled. I think if not for that, there would have been a real build in how uh, the U.S. Open Cup is is marketed, is produced, and and is probably received. And so I'm glad that ESPN is adding that little bit extra with the whip around show. Any, I'm here for any and all. If you want to put a whip around show around anything, I will watch it. I certainly hope that your idea about MLS whip around shows on league nights on the weekend, for example, um, that that's part of the next rights deal that somebody agrees to do that because um i think that would be good there's so many so many mls league games that it's it's i think something that makes it a bit more manageable um and because there's so much volume allows you to focus on maybe the best games because there's going to be some good stuff no matter what just because there's so many games the other thing i would say about the u.s open cup and this actually applies to the ccl final last week when i was in seattle is MLS rosters, even for the best teams in the league, they're not, those coaches are not playing their best players midweek and weekend. So, you know, Seattle, for example, obviously had its best lineup for the CCL final. And then the lineup they put out against Dallas on the weekend, most definitely not their best lineup. And other teams for MLS teams for the midweek U.S. Open Cup games, clearly not putting their best lineup out there. And in some cases, basically saying we don't really value the U.S. Open Cup that much. We value the league more. And I guess my question there is, are we really at that point that players can't play weekend, midweek, weekend in MLS? Is that really a thing? 
It would appear as though, although, I mean, there certainly are clubs that are taking it seriously. If you look at, for example, the lineup that the New York Red Bulls fielded, it's only a couple changes from their strongest team. They went away from home and played a DC United team where their manager after the game said, I took a look at the table and I want to prioritize the league. And so DC United basically went out of the cup in some way, not almost intentionally in a way, when you look at the differences in the lineups that they feel. LAFC fielded a pretty strong lineup as well. You kind of go through the squads, you can almost pick from the lineups who's going to go through because you're seeing who's valuing this competition. So I guess it's, you know, different mentalities. If if I were, you know, a fan of any of these teams, I want my team to field a reasonably strong lineup, although I think it's a chance for some guys to get a run. I know that uh, Inter-Miami, uh, the, the team in my area that, that I follow, um, have, have had a goalkeeper come through in U.S. Open Cup games, play really well, including uh, in, in, the, in the fourth round on Tuesday night when they beat South Georgia Tormenta. And he was tremendous in the game. He's been tremendous. And now it's kind of, you're, you're wondering, maybe he can be the number one. So it's an opportunity as well if you follow a team to really get to know some more of the players and maybe a few of them come through. But um, I think you can tell based off of lineups who's really having a go in this competition. I guess if anything, if if my my preference is, is that if a club is, MLS club is going to sacrifice games, sacrifice the MLS league games. There's a billion of them. And I realize at the end of the regular season, I know DC United missed the playoff by one point last season. So I kind of get that. But like, look what Seattle has done over the years, not just this year with CCL. They're like, we're going to try and win CCL. And if you decide that, you need to back it up by making choices on who you're going to play in CCL games. Seattle over the years has prioritized the US Open Cup, which they've won now many times. And... Why not, if I'm a fan, why not prioritize winning a trophy and having confidence in your team? Seattle's made the, the MLS playoffs 13 straight seasons, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's possible to prioritize trophies. Yeah, you have some margin for error, no doubt, in, in, in Major League Soccer with making the playoffs. You have 34 games to be one of the 14 teams that make it, so you definitely have margin for error, so I get that, but... Um, yeah, I think a, a lot of clubs feel like their their bread is buttered in the league. You look at the the difference in the crowds. The crowds are bigger for MLS games, um, so there is kind of a feeling that those games are more important. I guess the question, my my question to your question would be, why why is that represent a choice? And I guess that would mean improving the de- the quality of depth in the league. Uh, now there's 28 teams, you know, there's only so far, but some of that is spending as well, and also the ability to balance your spend across more of your roster. So maybe positions 11 through 18 are better rather than having to go for you know big money transfer fees on the top of your roster. So I guess like there there's that element as well. But I think it, it's interesting that there's a variety of models when it comes uh, to this competition, and I think the clubs that prioritize it will get a benefit from it. Because like you said, there's a trophy, there's advancing in the tournament, there's winning games. And I think a lot of that stuff translates to winning in the league. Good stuff, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Meg Swanick. Our guest now is doing really interesting work in the United States and global soccer space. Meg Swanick recently started the Swan Dive, her Substack newsletter that I subscribe to and you should consider doing so as well. She's also a freelance writer covering U.S. soccer for multiple outlets, including The Guardian. 
I met her while we were both covering U.S. World Cup qualifiers in Central America. You can find her on Twitter at Meg underscore Swanick. Meg, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Grant. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me. So let's start with your Substack site. Congratulations on that. What went into deciding to do that, and what kind of stuff are you going to have on it? All kinds of stuff, and it's been something I've been mulling over, launching for a while, and as as you know, I was on the road covering the World Cup qualifiers, home and away, um, only missing one, the, the game in Austin, because I was in Mexico City for the Canada game at the, at the Azteca. Um, but so many stor- stories pile up along that process that are related to what's happening on the field, but also far beyond it, whether that's with people in the city or other members of the media or people in the fan base. And I wanted to bring that um, more 360 uh, inside look to what the world of U.S. soccer and global soccer in our region and beyond is like. And so I wanted to start the Substack to have a home for all of those stories beyond what I might be publishing in, in The Guardian or or elsewhere. And then in terms of what you can look forward to, um, so there's a few specific projects coming up, but there's a, speci- a few um, kind of general themes that I write about. Um, so U.S. soccer is a big overarching theme, the culture of the sport in the United States, what supporter groups are like, what different cities bring, what local flavor different MLS teams bring to the game, USL teams, all levels, um, and WSL as well. I, I'll be writing a lot about the women's game and how that's developing here and abroad, um, how that compares here and abroad, different leagues, different national teams, including ours, of course. Um, And then in terms of big projects coming up, so I think we'll talk about it in a bit, but I've got some non-Swan Dive projects I'm working on. But in terms of the Swan Dive, I'm going to be in England um, this July, so I'm doing a lot to gear up for that, where I'll be um, writing about and enjoying the women's Euros, which are happening there. And then, of course, in the background is the lead up to Qatar, which um, I'm going to be doing a lot of writing and researching about on the Swan Dive. That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to all of that. Women's Euros is the biggest international tournament happening this summer. Um, probably bigger, I would say, than the the CONCACAF Women's World Cup qualifying tournament, but that's also happening, too, uh, down in Monterey. But I associate you with travel. I mean, you do a ton of traveling, both inside the U.S. I saw you recently were in Seattle for the CCL final. I think you were in Nashville for the opening of the stadium. Uh, and also globally. I mean, on Twitter, I'll see you posting from Europe or Central America or Mexico. Where all have you been in the past year? Yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to travel as much as I do. And it's been a really central part of my life, both personally and professionally. I've lived abroad a lot. Um, I've worked in the travel industry kind of on the side and still a little bit doing some stuff in the travel industry in addition to writing. Um, so it's a big part of my general ethos as a person to try and explore as many different locations as possible. Um, In the past year or so, I've been to all of the away World Cup qualifiers um, and try to spend as much time there as possible before and after the games. As you know, sometimes it's difficult because they have us in these tight windows. And so, you know, you're in the US for a few days and then you're in Central America for like a two day time period and kind of running around with your head cut off trying to get this COVID test or try as much food as possible in between the actual game. Um, But so I've been to all of those away World Cup qualifier locations. 
And that's been the focus of my travel internationally in the past year. Um, you're right, domestically. So I'm, my home base is in Philadelphia, technically, but I float around a lot. Um, I'm pretty nomadic in a certain sense. And yeah, I try to, and especially from now until the World Cup, I'm going to be doing a lot of US-based travel related to NWSL, to MLS, um, and, and seeing different flavors of different locations and the teams um, that are there. So that includes, yeah, I was just in Nashville for that, that home opener of their stadium. And then in Seattle, um, you might see me posting from some East Coast cities that are a bit easier for me to get to from Philly. So I'll be in D.C. shortly. I'll be in New York um, in the near future. So, yeah, a lot of U.S.-based travel coming up, too. So what's kind of your backstory with soccer? Because it seems like mm -hmm. everyone has a story, especially in the United States, who's connected to the sport. I would say, I mean, first of all, I grew up playing it. And I think like a lot of people kind of in my age range, um, that 99 1999 women's team had a big impact on, on me wanting to play myself, but also um, really falling in, in love with the sport and from all people who were playing it. And so I, I grew up playing soccer. I always loved soccer. You know, I grew, com I, I played competitively through high school and then for fun since then. But I think when soccer started to become something I really wanted to hone in on and write about was after college a little bit when I was studying abroad in college um, but after college I lived abroad and it was really um, in those last few years of college and then after into my 20s when I was traveling around the world I started to pick up on the fact that there was this kind of giant party or giant um, world that everyone was a part of and it was something that connected people from all types of backgrounds and countries and um, it had this own specific language that people could talk to from all over the world and I wanted to understand it more and I wanted to be a part of it and so um, that kind of led me to going to World Cups and then building a lot of friends and um, contacts in, in the global space of, of the sport. And as part of that process, I then became fascinated with how the sport grew up in, in the U.S. and what makes it different here and um, how we relate to the world with it. I mean, one thing I've sensed so far in following your work is you do a really good job bridging sort of traditional journalism, covering soccer with having a real sense of the pulse of U.S. fans in particular. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you go about doing that and, and approaching that and how you see U.S. fans and the fan base as it grows. What's your sense of it? Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about the U.S. fan base is it's kind of impossible to describe it as any one thing. Um, it's such a large, vast country. People come to the sport from so many different backgrounds, from so many different tournaments that got them hooked. And like you said, everyone's got their origin story, whether it's, um, you know, my parents are from Germany or I grew up in um, El Salvador or whatever it might be. I think that that background, um, like a lot of things in the U.S., and that origin story for everyone who watches and likes the sport um, is brought to the culture of soccer in the U.S. So it's so varied. Um, it's varied for the reasons why people come to the sport. It's varied because of all the different regions in the U.S. I think that's one of the things that fascinates me most about it. But in terms of relating to the fan base, um, it, it could be in part that I'm as interested by the fan base as I am by the sport. And so I try to 
pay attention to what's interesting to them or how they're consuming the sport, where they're consuming it, why they consume it, and try to tell those stories as much as anything else. And this won't surprise you here. There are very few women working as soccer journalists in the United States and even fewer who travel to World Cup qualifiers in Central America and Mexico and elsewhere. Basically, it was you and Jenny Chu from CBS, it seemed like. Why do you think that is? And I find myself asking what we can do, what I can do to help make that change in the future. Yeah, that's a really important question, I think, to ask. And yeah, of course, always have appreciated your support. I have to be honest, I was pretty shocked that I was the only woman at the away qualifiers alongside Jenny or the only one in in the press box area. Um, And then, you know, of course, there's other women who write about the national team, but not as many traveling. And it's really interesting. And I, I wonder how and how and why that happens exactly. And, you know, there's so many women who I know want to be writing about the national team. And I think like a lot of things, it just takes, you know, encouragement, um, having mentors or offering that kind of thing to younger journalists who want to write about the men's team. Um, and I think, unfortunately, it might just take time. It could just be that traditionally there hasn't been as many females in the press box, and it's going to take a lot of concerted effort in supporting younger female journalists to um, bring them in. I do think being aware that that's a thing and wanting that to change is a big part of that battle, though. And I guess one question I would also have is just from sustainability. There aren't that many full-time soccer journalists in the United States, and as much as the sport has grown, because it undeniably has, and the business of soccer in the United States, professional soccer has grown, the media landscape, I think, sometimes is reflective of the media landscape at large, not just in soccer, where media outlets are struggling. And, you know, it's, I look at my previous employer, Sports Illustrated, didn't send anyone to the CONCACAF Champions League final in Seattle, which is a major, major story. What are what sort of tricks have you learned about sustainability and, and, and still being able to travel and do what you want to do and, and make this work? Yeah, I think, well, one thing, um, going back to your point about the landscape of soccer journalism in the United States, I do think it's more popular than some major um, newspaper or magazine outlets realize. And I think this is such an important year for the entire genre of writing about the sport in the U.S. because, you know, we can, first of all, bring more people in who are interested. I have so many people in my life who consume a lot of sports, are curious about soccer, but don't really know. And, you know, if we were able to, I think, tell more compelling stories, and this is part of why I wanted to start the Swan Dive, is tell more compelling stories about the full picture, not just the sport, but the cultures, the varied cultures that go into it, the the background of the players. Um, I think we could bring more people and more eyes to the sport in this World Cup year and um, then have, you know, a case study to present to more newspapers who should be investing more, I think. So, so that's one thing that I would say. And then in terms of sustainability, I think that this is where being independent can sometimes be a benefit. Um, just in terms of pulling together different freelance projects, you do have to hustle to make it work, but you're less beholden um, to one outlet approving the one project you want to do, and you can con- just kind of do it um, and then have those freelance projects come together to support you. Um, And then, you know, one idea with the Swan Dive, which for now is a side project, but as it grows in content, um, I'd love to be 
fully independent if possible and be able to just be in charge of what I cover, where I cover it, um, and that, that kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, it's a crowded, it's an increasingly crowded space. I think the space of independent journalism and, and substacking and stuff like that. Um, but I do think that that's one of the answers to, to that problem is you have people who perhaps can do it well and will be able to direct what they're doing and where they're doing it. I mean, that's one thing I've learned doing my own Substack platform is that you don't need that many paying subscribers to to get a benefit uh, from that. Like, you don't need like 50,000. I, I remember people telling me like in the podcast space, if you really want advertisers, you got to get twenty five to 50,000 listens an episode. And that's really hard. <laughs> um, yeah. And so if you can get I don't know, a few hundred, couple thousand, you know, subscribers, like this can be a sustainable gig. And I, I will say this, I, my guess is you've had a similar experience. It's nice being your own boss and, and being able to, if I want to approve a story, I don't have to ask anybody. I just go and do it. And I assume you like that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was a big part of why I wanted to do this is, and I think you'll find that there are a lot of people, I mean, I'm a patron of a lot of different independent um, journalists and people and creators on a lot of different mediums as well. And I think you'll, I think you'd find that a lot of people are interested to support projects that are able to do that and are able to step outside of what's expected um, or what you know traditional media assumes about what's interesting in the sport and support people who are able to go out there and tell more interesting things. How did you get connected to the, the Guardian in the first place? That happened at the Women's World Cup in, in 2019, um, which is actually something I'm, I'm still writing about in the lead up to the next World Cup. That's one of my uh, book projects I'm, that I'm working on. And I had actually sent them um and i write for the guardian us but i sent to the guardian uk just like a portion of what i was writing and i mean completely just very boldly like sent like a section um to the editor and he replied back and was like this is very interesting and um that started a whole conversation between us and um you know i've been doing a lot of different projects in the interim years since 2019 but when this whole thing started up um this whole thing being world cup qualifying i reached back out and, and was connected to them and um, started writing for them about the qualifiers you had an interesting situation happen a couple months ago when you broke the news that brendan aronson was not going to be coming into the u.s men's national team camp due to an injury and then u.s soccer pushed back on that and then it turned out you were right. What was that experience like? It was, I mean, it was definitely an interesting 24 hours. Um, and I, ultimately, what happened there is that U.S. soccer um, wanted to be the official bearer of, of the news. They wanted to be the one to break that news. They were also doing additional checks on Brendan. But the information that I had was um, obviously true and it was also very solid and adamant that he was not able to come in he was far too injured um, they were sure but then there was a 24-hour period where u.s soccer was not willing to announce it yet and we're unhappy that i had so there was a complete just disarray of um stories going on about what was happening to brendan aronson because of that it's it's really interesting because that brings in social media stuff it brings in um just breaking news which is 
is something I do occasionally at this point. It's not something I, I do as much as maybe I did a few years ago when I was an insider for Fox. Um, but that's um, you, that's an interesting position to be in because in my experience, if you get a hundred breaking news stories right and then you get one wrong, people remember the one you get wrong. And so you really, I, I always felt a lot of pressure to get it right. And so sometimes if someone pushed back publicly, it would be stressful um, to, like during that, you know, it for me. So I can imagine that was for you and then you ended up being right. Yeah. And it's uh, like you said, you know, as someone who is a writer, who is a reporter, you never want to put false information out there. And so there was definitely um, a bit of an oh no moment where I felt like, oh, I had put something not true out there. And um, obviously that's not good reputationally or just professionally, not something I'm interested in doing, regardless of reputation. I have to be honest, I was in Mexico City at the time. Um, My cousin has a really lovely apartment and and family with a dog and a two-year-old um and so i I really just unplugged and was like on the rooftop with with her two-year-old son and and was like well what will be will be and i'll figure it out (laughs) and then we talked a little bit about the media landscape for covering soccer in the united states these days is there anything else about it that has stood out to you i think that it's um it feels very cut off from the rest of not just the media, but but sports media. And I think one thing that I have an interest in, you know, just um, if possible in the next year, kind of, and you see it a little bit and you see it in World Cup years, but I would love to see soccer media news about the sport, stories about the sport be more integrated um, into the regular news cycle, into sports media. And I really do think that the atmosphere is ripe, obviously, in a World Cup year. But as I mentioned, there's so many compelling stories attached to this team, where they're headed, where all these players came from, this kind of period of regeneration that we're in. And I think a lot of Americans would really get on board, but the stories aren't, aren't getting to them. So I'd love to see um, the media take advantage of a World Cup year to bring those stories to everybody and have kind of mainstream sports media, but also media um, integrate soccer more soundly. I mean, even in a city like Philadelphia, it's such a a, um, frenzied sports city in a certain sense. And you have people like Jonathan Tannenwald doing an incredible job at the Philly Inquirer. But you know, be, he's kind of been holding down the ship in Philly for a long time in, in in terms of getting the word out there in mainstream news. I'd love to see it in more outlets. I'd love to see it getting more airtime because, um, you know, the union are such a compelling team. So I think bringing them into the central news cycle is... is yeah, I totally agree with that. That's an interesting perspective. And I'm curious to see not just in a men's World Cup year this year, but women's World Cup next year and then hosting a men's world cup in the united states in 2026 how we might see some changes but i'm not sure like i'm not good at predicting this stuff meg like it's something where i never thought it was inevitable that soccer would get to the point it is in right now with in the united states i'm glad it has i went full-time soccer in 09 just because i really enjoyed telling the stories of the sport and there weren't many full-time soccer writers at that point and i've been doing that ever since but 
are you like me? Is it hard for you to predict or, or do you like, do you see, where do you see this in, in 2026, you know, basically exactly four years from now, as we get really close to having a world cup in the United States again? I feel pretty optimistic about it for a few reasons. Um, one is I keep mentioning storytelling, but I think that's key. I was just talking to somebody about this who doesn't watch soccer, but they were like, okay, convince me. And I was telling them like all these stories and they were talking about how um, they got into F1 racing because of this documentary on on Netflix. I think the more we see um, like HBO Max or Netflix or you know even creators on YouTube, there's so many different methods to tell the stories of the sport generally, globally, but also in the US. I think that I feel confident we're gonna see more and more creative ways to tell the stories of the sport in the US that will get people hooked and interested. Um, I think that's a huge part of it is first of all storytelling, but second of all, um, tapping into all the different ways that you can do that. And I think I feel pretty confident that we're going to see a, a huge influx even of people who are interested in doing that. Um, and the second reason is I think that there is a clear concerted effort um, at a number of levels. I know we just talked about how, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media or traditional sports media not entirely integrating soccer just yet. But at the same time, I think that there's more interest um, across the US to bring soccer in or to understand the movement more. And I, I especially since we're hosting the World Cup in 2026, um, I feel pretty hopeful, but obviously it's always, media uh, as a general landscape is, is hard to predict. So with the caveat of who knows what will happen, I, I feel pretty excited, I think, about what we're going to see. Yeah, Drive to Survive has been hugely influential in making That's Formula one. one more yeah. popular. And to the point now where I know that there's video series being pitched all the time in different sports to do the Drive to Survive 4X. And exactly, my thing with soccer yeah. is, I kind of think MLS should do something like that or the NWSL. Um, though I would say that the soccer space globally access has not always been easy uh, to get uh, inside teams. And so it's interesting to me that such an international uh, group like Formula One, that they were able to convince the drivers to do that. And now they've seen the positive results. So I, I'm just curious to see what sort of drive to survive things we might see in the soccer space, including domestically here moving forward. One of the most traditional things you can do in the media is to write a book. And you have a couple of book projects. Would you mind sharing a little about what you're working on? I would love to. Um, and thanks for asking. I don't, I don't have release dates or anything like that for anybody, but I, I will give you a sneak peek. There's two of them. Um, I kind of hinted at a bit earlier, one is about the 2019 World Cup in France, uh, the Women's World Cup that of course the US national team won, quite a historic team, lots of interesting characters and storylines there, and I was um, there in France for the full tournament, and so the book is a mix of you know, my stories of being in France for that full month and what that was like in the cities that were hosting the World Cup. And then also kind of digging into the very interesting storylines and games from, you know, that first game 13-0 against Thailand, all the way to that final against the Netherlands. So it's been fun for me. I'm actually nearly finished with that one. Um, but it's been it's been a lot of fun to kind of go back and, and tell those stories 
but also with the time passed kind of has added more perspective to what that tournament means in the grand landscape of the women's game and so um, that's a part of it as well and then the second book um, is about World Cup qualifying and CONCACAF and this incredible region of ours. Uh, so it'll start last summer, um, kind of in the Nations League Gold Cup era. And I'll take you from Kansas City, where I was with the Gold Cup, um, to World Cup qualifying in Costa Rica. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to to read both of those. And I do think that that 2019 Women's World Cup team, it's crazy to say that a World Cup winning team from the United States might have been undercovered. But I, I would say this, in retrospect, as the years go on, I think there's aspects of that 2019 story that are even more special than maybe we realized in the moment. And yeah. that's a sort of a rare thing to happen. I completely agree. And um, that's something, like, as I said, if it's only been a few years, I think we'll see it even more as more time passes. But I think that that you know, that team is up there, but the 1999ers Niners in terms of historic impact and just the incredible legendary nature of that entire tournament. There's there's so much in it, even um, beyond the U.S., because I think the global game is really changing. And you saw those those wheels in motion at that World Cup. Meg Swanick recently started the Swan Dive, her Substack newsletter that I subscribe to and you should consider as well. She's also a freelance writer covering U.S. soccer for multiple outlets, including The Guardian. Meg, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Meg Swanick, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>